Welcome to the Into Project Podcast. My name is Lily May, and today we will be discussing one of the most beneficial insects, Apis mellifera, also known as the honeybee. We will be having a conversation about just how important these beautiful insects are with Dr. Rangel. Dr. Rangel is a professor at Texas A&M University. She has a Bachelor's of Science from the University of California in San Diego of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution, as well as a PhD in Neurobiology and Behavior from Cornell University. She has many publications pertaining to honeybees and their behavior, which we will discuss later on in this episode. Dr. Ringel is an expert on all things honeybees, so I'm very excited to have a conversation with her. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Ringel, for meeting with me. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. Okay. And you? I'm good, I'm very good. It's kind of crazy it's already Friday, but... <laughs> My, these are not working well, so I'm... Oh, I love your background, too. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> that's our backyard. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, one day it was just the perfect shot. The sunsets here really are absolutely incredible. Yeah, they are. Okay, so I would love to just go ahead and get started. I don't want to take too much of your time today because um, I know that you are probably very busy. Um, so would you mind just telling um, everybody how you got involved with honeybees and just kind of where your, um, your spark originally began um, with it? Uh, so I was an undergraduate student in ecology, behavior, and evolution at the University of California, San Diego, where my family is. And... Um, in 2001, um, I reached out to a couple of professors to do some undergraduate research. And two people replied. One was uh, in a neuroscience program. And I actually ended up working with him until I graduated, um, working on um, just plasticity of, um, of neurons in, in the brain of, of of rats. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I did it as a job. I got paid and, and, and it was a great experience. And I we actually got a paper out of that, but I just didn't feel like I wanted to be in the lab all the time. The other experience was with a professor. Um, uh, he's now a professor um, in ecology, behavior and evolution, James Nye, who was, had just gotten hired um, and uh, he worked with honeybees. But back then he worked with, well, he still does a little bit with stingless honeybees from South America. Okay. And so I started doing some data analysis um, for him, but he said, like, if you, if you stick around and you do a good job, um, hopefully I'll be able to take you to Brazil to do some field work with me with stingless bees. And I just got hooked and, and sure enough, the following summer we went to Brazil and I just fell in love with honeybees and um, their behavior and their whole biology and um, being outdoors, working outside. So I've been working with bees since, but I moved to working with the Western honeybee, which is what we study here at A&M uh, in 2006. Okay. So you've obviously been working with honeybees for a very long time. So what is your most interesting honeybee moment, would you say? Oh, uh, one, um, <laughs> one story that I have that's, um, kind of 
funny and, and sad too. I was um, doing my, my PhD with Professor Tom Seeley in Ithaca, New York, and um, he had planted a couple of trees um, in the, at the beginning of the year 2000, he called them the Millennium Oaks uh, because he planted them in 2000 and kind of that was the significance is that he wanted them to maybe turn maybe a thousand years old in, in the year 3000 or something and he planted them uh, next to each other but they were right in front of the shed where I did all my work on swarming honeybees. Um, so by then that was maybe six years after they had been planted. Um, they were still quite small. And I worked on getting these colonies really eager to swarm and, and cluster on a tree branch. And one day was the perfect condition. A bunch of colonies swarmed at the same time and they all landed on the Millennium Oak uh, and broke it. Oh my gosh. From the weight and <laughs> the, uh, the weight of the bees. So it was like pounds and pounds of bees just hanging from a tree branch. Um, just kind of broke the, the main branch of the oak and stopped its growth, you know, like maybe what had grown for the last four years or so in just a matter of, of, of that is minutes. crazy. Not quite going to make it to the year 3000. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I, I don't know if they're still there, but he was kind of upset and but he understood, you know, that I couldn't do anything because the, the bees will release chemical, you know, pheromones that mark these trees. And so they keep wanting to land in the same spot every time they swarm. And we tried everything uh, um, in the days afterwards try, with the experiments. We even, he even went to the woods to cut a pine tree for me. So I would put the tree right in front of where they would leave so that they wouldn't go for the oak, but it didn't work. They, they already went their territory. Stuff that was left. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's awesome. Okay, so what are some of your favorite attributes or aspects of honeybees, just that you've seen through studying them? Well, I find it very interesting and curious that honeybee queens, who are the mother of all the bees in a colony, have such a long life uh, compared to workers. So workers live maybe 30 to 100 days, depending on the time of year. Um, but queens can live up to two to three years. Mm -hmm. And throughout their life, they can lay anywhere from maybe 1,000 to 2,000 eggs every day of their life until they die. Uh, either of old age, or they get killed by the workers, um, or they get sick. But but if they last even just a year, it's a very different uh, life expectancy than for workers. And, and what's even cooler about that is that they have a sperm storage organ called the spermatheca. It's a little round um, sphere that where they collect all the sperm from their um, mates. Um, they only mate in a couple of days early on in their year, in their life, and they mate with like twelve to fifteen drones, back to back in a couple of days, and then they store some of that sperm for that whole year or those two years, and the sperm still remains alive two years after they mated, and so. How they do that, we still don't understand fully. And I just find it fascinating that you can keep 
what you would consider a foreign substance because it's basically sperm plus sperm cells from all kinds of weird dudes <laughs> in this <laughs> organ and they don't their body doesn't really kill them as foreign objects they actually keep them alive so that she can fertilize eggs day after day after day that's incredible so um in terms of the biology of a worker and a queen their bodies are they made completely different or are they, they are made completely different so uh, they both come from fertilized eggs uh, so that means that they have a mom and a dad because they get um, the egg gets fertilized with uh, with uh, sperm from one of the many drone partners that the queen made it with. And then they stay in the egg stage for three days, and when they hatch into a larva, that's the stage of food consumption of growth, and they have a they're, they're in the larval state for five days. But if the workers decide to feed that larva what we call royal jelly, which is this very highly proteinaceous food that is fed to queens, then they develop into queens. If they are fed regular worker food that doesn't have as many proteins or as many sugars or, or specific types of proteins, then they turn into a worker. and. Uh, and that therefore they are smaller in size. They don't really have a spermatheca. They don't have a copulatory system. They don't get to mate. So they're basically sterile. Um, they never mate. So they're very different in size and the types of organs they have. They have the pollen baskets or the, um, the structure in their hind legs that allow them to collect pollen from flowers. The queens don't have that because they don't collect uh, food. They get fed most of the time by the workers inside the colony. Wow, that's so cool. It really shows the dynamics of the different categories of bees. That's awesome. That's right. um, so why is it important for us to study bee behavior and to learn about that? So it's in general in biology, it's, it's uh, really good to have information about the basic biology of all living organisms, but in particular for honeybees, they are the most important beneficial insect in to man uh, because of the pollination services they provide not just for the food that we consume fruits and vegetables but also to the natural landscape and just wildflowers and all kinds of flowering plants that are out there so understanding their biology and the factors that might affect their health will help us improve their chances of increasing their population of that not damaging their health um, and helping us in turn, uh, secure our uh, food production because they, they're responsible for pollinating about a third of the food we consume. Um, just worldwide, they're uh, estimated to provide over $200 billion to the world economy every year just in pollination services. And in the US, that goes um, to about 16 to $17 billion annually. And so studying their health their biology to learn how to improve it or at least not deteriorate deteriorate it as, as much is really important for every person. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, could you talk a little bit about how bees may communicate um, within the colony and how their forms of communication may or may not be similar to how humans communicate? Um, I know yeah. they have a different language than yeah. right. English or anything, but... 
So honeybees are the only other species besides humans that um, has what we call referential communication, which means that one individual that is going to communicate with the other um, is telling the other uh, reference points to indicate where a location is just based on giving them directions. So um, in the case of humans, let's say that you want to go to the HEB uh, a mile and a half from here, then you tell them uh, which direction to go in your car and where to turn and what street to turn and then you get to the HEB. But there really isn't any other uh, um, species besides honeybees that will be able to tell you that. But honeybees have what we call the waggle dance, which is a very um, spectacular behavior where the bee that goes out and looks and finds a really sweet nectar source from a flower patch or a lot of pollen in a flower patch. Um, once it feels very eager to communicate to other nestmates where that really good food source is and she comes back and, and does that egg eight shaped um, behavior called the waggle dance where they go up and then waggle their, their abdomen and they go around the uh, opposite direction and they waggle again. Well, the duration of that waggle phase um, is directly correlated with the, uh, the distance at which the food is. So it's roughly every second of waggling corresponds to about a uh, thousand meters. And then the angle at which the, the waggle um, part of the dance is performed based on a vertical um, zero degree up being um, um, uh, zero, yeah, zero degrees and then going basically around 360 degrees. That angle is corresponds to the angle at which the, the food site is located outside of the nest. So they're basically saying um, there's food at 45 degrees to the right of the entrance, uh, about 800 yards away. And then how the, um, the rest of the information is conveyed is through chemical cues. So they bring back the nectar, they give them um, uh, food samples while they're doing the waggle dance. So they know what it tastes like. And they also have pollen on their, on their, um, on their body that smells like the patch of flowers that they got the food from. And so they are, uh, cause they live in this very uh, dark hive um, inside a tree cavity or in your bee yard, if you're a beekeeper, they communicate mostly chemically or through, through vibrational cues. And so they have multimodal communication, but in particular that waggle dance is the one that is the most fascinating because they're, they're the only other species besides us that can do referential communication. Yeah, that's incredible. I've seen videos of it and they are just the smartest tiny little things. It's so cool to see. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, how important honeybees are to the climate in terms of pollination. Um, so are there anything that we could do, is there anything we could do on like a small or a large scale in order to help save bees and to help promote um, bee culture and to just bring awareness to? 
Yeah, there's there's a few things that we can do as everyday citizens. Well, the first is just to increase awareness and to be aware of their importance is already very, very good. So things like what you're doing, just creating awareness for your fellow students or, or people in the general public that may not know how important bees and native pollinators are to our ecosystems. Um, if you live in a house that has uh, a small garden or a green area, uh, there's a couple of things that you could do. You could plant pollinator attracting plants, uh, which are may not look so beautiful and um, aesthetically perfect as you might be used to, but those, those plants that are uh, being bred basically for our amusement and, and, and our our likes are not necessarily the best for pollinators because they might not even provide pollen or nectar. Whereas the ones that you can buy at stores that say pollinator friendly will have um, mostly native plants that are not as pretty, but they're perfect for pollinators. So you can plant those in bigger patches than just one or two because they like things where there's multiple flowers uh, instead of just one at a time. Um, uh, disrupt the use of pesticides, especially uh, near these pollinator friendly plants so you don't use harsh chemicals that the bees can come in contact with during their pollination trips. And even something that if you live, you know, with your parents, let's say in, in um, uh, in this country, we love to mow our lawns, and that's kind of not just a hobby, but also we just like to keep a beautiful turf. Um, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago that said that lazy homeowners had um, a better pollinator um, um, community in their yards, and it's because if you stay, if you delay the mowing of your lawn, then you have more time for these wildflowers to appear on your lawn, which are perfect for honeybees and native pollinators to collect nectar and pollen from. And so um, I know that a lot of people live in, um, you know, places that have homeowners associations that have requirements for mowing, but if you can prevent mowing as often and allow some of these wildflowers to sprout, maybe not use weed killers because what we consider weeds our noxious weeds are actually really good for pollinators. So all of those steps are really simple things that we can do to um, provide more opportunities for these pollinators to, to uh, get um, access to um, not just nutritional, you know, nutritious foods, but also diversity of plants. Because just like we like to eat diverse types of vegetables and fruits in our diet, so do bees. So if they're in a monoculture with only one crop being planted for acres and acres, they only get one type of, of food for a few weeks. And that's really not as healthy as having a, a polyfloral diet for them. There's so much we could do on both a large and a small scale. Um, which is so awesome to think about being able to just help in a small way. Yeah. Um, are there any organizations or resources that maybe you would suggest people look into just in case they need more information or want to get involved in like a large scale? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we just finished um, the yearly conference for the North, Ameri North American Pollinator Protection Campaign, NAPPC. And that um, that huge organization um, is kind of a, a liaison of a bunch of other uh, organizations that uh, 
whose whose whole purpose is to increase awareness about pollinator health and to promote research um, on pollinator health. Um, the CERCES Society, X-E-R-C-E-S, is another good um, source of information about um, pollinator health, just not just honeybees, but just in our backyard. Our lab has a really uh, active Facebook page, so you look up Tamil Honeybee Lab, um, both in um, Facebook and Instagram, and we post all the type of work that we're doing in the lab, but also work that others are doing around the country and around the world. Um, the Texas Beekeepers Association is the umbrella organization for beekeepers in the state, but we also have a Brazos Valley Beekeepers Association that, uh, of course, it's uh, for people in the Brazos Valley. Um, and the Central Texas Beekeepers is a bigger regional um, group that does a yearly bee school in the spring and so combine those last three um, and, and with our group we have about five or six B schools throughout the year that are aimed at every level of expertise in beekeeping from beginner to to um, advanced so there's just all kinds of of um, opportunities and and resources that students and anyone can look into Thank you again so much for taking time out of your day to discuss with me about honeybees and just how incredible they are. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. I hope after hearing this episode all about Apis mellifera, you will be moved to learn more about honeybees and do all that you can to help maintain and save their lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Into Project.